one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's the second time it's gone off. Never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. That's... Yeah, they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm a little bit of an idealist. But having said that, I want to be like me. But you don't know what you're talking about. What did you want? I'd like to stay alive for six days. I'd say it to your face, and I'll say it to you now. Come down to Wanfield, and we'll see them, won't we? What you doing down here, you shawny man? The Russian footballer Yuri Zhirkov enjoys collecting Second World War memorabilia and plans to open a museum in an old German bunker in Kaliningrad. Egypt have a player in their squad who wasn't even born when their goalkeeper made his international debut. 82-year-old Hunter Davies got the Tottenham Hotspur cockerel tattooed on his arm on holidays in Cyprus last week. These are just a few of the pointless facts you learn when you bury yourself in World Cup supplements. Why did Hunter Davies get a Spurs tattoo last week? He didn't fully explain it in his piece. He said his grandkids thought he was bonkers, though, Ken. And did he get the new logo? I mean, I say the new logo. It's probably about 10 years old at this stage. It's in the Sunday Times supplement. I've got it downstairs. A picture of his tattoo? uh, Well, it's yeah, it's a grainy. It's more a picture of him on holidays with his grandkids looking... Yeah. Faux shocked at this tattoo that he has in his arms. You don't really see it close. Is it his first tattoo? Does he have a ton of them? I didn't notice a ton of them. Yeah. Maybe when you get into your 80s, sometimes you want to do Who some of those things that you've never done. I want to leave a mark on myself. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> Hello and welcome to our Russia 2018 preview podcast. Hi, Murph. Hi, Ken. Hey, hey how are you? You hey, fly Ken. off tomorrow, Ken. And I see you've spent the build-up buried in a telegram sent by a US diplomat in Moscow back to the US in 1946, really getting into the World Cup spirit. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, Owen. Um, I, that was for the Irish Times World Cup uh, preview magazine. George Kennan's long telegram, as yeah. it was literally known. Yeah, I've already got some um, Twitter responses from satisfied readers. God. Kennan's telegram is an orientalist diatribe replete with Eastern stereotypes. Ed Said's criticism of this type of vicious nonsense stands despite his focus on the Middle East. I'm surprised your ma's letting you go. That says one satisfied listener, Connor, I think. I hope this journey opens up your mind some, or opens your mind up some. So he's accusing me of peddling Orientalism. Oh, God. The point of referring to this uh, long um, memo from George Kennan in 1946 was not that, wow, 
uh, this guy really nailed it. You know, this this like uh, American cold warrior diplomat spy really uh, rumbled the Ruskies. You know, and 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 the well, the point is rather that when you read it now, in a completely different world. I mean, the world then is couldn't. It's it's a totally different world. So he was writing in Moscow in 1946, immediately after the Second World War has just finished. Russia or the Soviet Union is like the world's scariest military power. They have got troops all throughout Central Europe. Um, they also have an ideological commitment to spreading communism throughout the world, or as they would see it, liberating uh, the peoples of the, all the enslaved peoples of the world from their capitalist oppressors. So that's like it, there is an official evangelical commitment to doing that. Uh, there, you know that the uh, okay that the actual dictator at the time was not so keen on, but he is an you know an absolute dictator, um, Joseph Stalin. So uh, a radically different world. I mean, now Russia is uh, is a much smaller country than it was. It's relative to the rest of the world. It's it's nowhere near economically as powerful. It's nowhere near militarily as powerful. It doesn't have any ideological commitment to spreading anything. Soccer is popular. It's 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 not like I mean Russia is is one of the most sort of capitalist countries going at the moment. You know they're not they're not looking for any world revolution right now, mm. and yet when you read this thing from 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 so long ago, it's so many of the bits in it could be written today or or ha, rather have been written today. I mean it's the same kind of things are being said. Moscow aimed to set major Western powers against each other. Anti-British talk will be plugged among Americans. Anti-American talk among British. Continentals, including Germans, will be taught to abhor both Anglo-Saxon powers. Where suspicions exist, they will be fanned. Where not, they'll be ignited. This is That does sound quite is, familiar. God, sorry, did you see the Sunday Times over the weekend? <laughs> Literally, the Sunday Times' story was, uh, you know, um, Brexit's, uh, Brexit idiot Aaron Banks uh, is up to his armpits in uh, Russia. Uh, you know what I mean? It was uh, oh, yeah. all these emails. Oh, I've actually had this Isabel Oakshot this journalist. Oh, I've actually had all these emails for a while. I just didn't think realize they were newsworthy. <laughs> you know, I mean, it were, uh, nonsense from her. I mean, go and read this many times. But this, the the thrust of the story is essentially this. So here's you know Russia. It, it's a it's a sort of a, a Russian operation Brexit. Like they you know obviously the Brexit because it just simply divides and conquer. You know to to get a back channel to Trump. Trump is this big win for Russia because it's subverting the American political system. You know so. Whether or not you think any of that stuff is true, it's the same basic idea. It's the same basic idea that, that you know, in Moscow, there is this um, antagonist, which is, uh, which, which is kind of uh, can't be reasonable. It doesn't believe in objective truth. This is, that's another line in the canon memo, which, which is something which I think is also quite uh, contemporary in terms of the, the criticisms you would see of Russians, Russia's propaganda and so on, is skilled in the arts of deception, you know, sp mm -hmm. masters of the spy game, right, which is exactly the way that it is now. It's a different type of spying. Yeah. A different, different type of spying, even more sophisticated, but they've still got the, they've still got the edge. Maybe they were just bots that got onto you this morning. Uh, no, I, well, I'm not sure. <laughs> I don't think so. I don't, I've heard from Connor a few times. Uh, uh, over the over the, the years, um, the the idea also that um, that much of what uh, that that the attitude of the Russian or the Soviet regime, as Kennedy described it in 1946, and today's regime, is that it 
what they really fear is the is actually the weakness of the regime that it cannot stand comparison with better systems you know which are usually located to the to the west or whatever that it can't that they're afraid of people being of their their people finding out too much about the outside world because then they rise up against this corrupt sort of oligarchy that's controlling the country you know okay again whether or not you see any resemblances and to be honest the the situations couldn't <laughs> couldn't really be much more different it is remarkable how the rhetoric rhetoric is the same so why is that like is it because you know is it because some things are kind of are beyond like uh, the day-to-day, year-to-year, decade-to-decade politics. There are some historical forces which are above that, or is it simply, or is it that you know it, the attitudes that haven't changed are actually on the Western mm-hmm. side that we always want to see this, like this uh, kind of uh, malignant, um, deceptive, dishonest antagonist in you know in in, uh, in russia and sort of project onto it what we want to see you know like the hooligans the racists homophobes you know it's like um it's a very di- it's a real dilemma the more you think about it the, diff- the more difficult it is to to know what you think about it like you know? i said everybody the world cup spirit <laughs> <laughs> but i thought we were supposed to be talking about world cup supplements or panini sticker albums or something but hey tw- listen 2018 the long telegram yeah. i mean it's it's like there are I mean, like Connor's point to me is, oh, these are these are stereotypes and so on. You're not just talking about sort of stereotypes or Orientalism or or also stereotypes are interesting. You know, so, well, so, the, the idea of a nation being reduced to a stereotype isn't itself very interesting because you have to investigate why exactly you feel like that and why that idea has gathered such traction as to become a stereotype in the first place. Why this? I mean, ste- why is it this stereotype as opposed to a different one? What's the appeal of the stereotype to the person who propagates it? And that in itself is very, very interesting. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. But I also think that, you're, that we're not only talking about stereotypes here. I mean, there are things that have really happened. You know, like uh, that, that plane that got shot down, MH17, that, that's a real thing that happened, you know, the, for which no responsibility has yet been admitted. You know, are we supposed to say that's just a, you know, it's 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 like a we're talking about stereotypes. I mean, the, the thing that's what's happening in Ukraine. There's there's like a a, a war that's kind of gone co- that's congealed, but it hasn't. It's not over. You know, the annexation of Crimea that that happened. You know, the, so it's not it's not simply a case of paranoia or you know there there is a, again a certain amount of that, but distinguishing between what's real and what's propaganda is difficult. You know, to what extent do you like? I mean, the piece, the thing that I was talking about in that piece is, lots of people will go to the World Cup, and will just be going around the towns, and they're not going to be dealing with, you know, the the Russian government or security services. They're going to be dealing with like normal people. Yeah, uh, Ivan on the street. Uh, even Kennan says, you know, basically says the Russians are fine fellows. Please note that all of the following is specifically about the actual leadership. Right, not not the you know not the, the people. People are great, um, and that may be the one kind of positive thing about this World Cup in the sense that you know I don't really see it as as being a big propaganda opportunity anymore. I think maybe they thought it was going to be at the at the beginning eight years ago. Eight years ago, again, a very different set of circumstances. They they tried this with with Sochi to sort of project a real positive image, and it turned into a total disaster. There has there has never been as big a disaster in PR terms. A Sochi, there no sporting mega event has ever been such a PR disaster because of the drug cheating. Because at the beginning, it, all the coverage was about the corruption. Fifty billion. How do they spend fifty billion dollars on this thing? 
Um, uh, you know, how, how did how, how, Boris Nemtsov was the name of one of the opposition politicians, a former deputy prime minister who produced a, a report saying he, he reckoned 30 billion of the 50 billion had just gone in corruption. He was shot dead the following year, uh, the, the year after uh, the Olympics. But, you know, these are the, these are the sorts of things that happen. But the corruption story dominated. Then the actual thing itself, it was gay rights. It was the law against, uh, as they say, uh, promotion of non-traditional sexual relationships to minors, uh, the anti-gay propaganda law. This was this was the focus of of huge uh, media attention. So it was like uh, corrupt, homophobic. Uh, what have we got next? Oh yeah, then there was the doping. Then the, this massive doping operation was uncovered after the Olympics. So it became a the biggest doping scandal, you know, since the fall of the the Iron Curtain, <laughs> and. Then they invaded Ukraine almost immediately, so it was warmongering. So it was like, on every on every front of public relations, it was a disaster. I honestly don't even think they hope this is going to be any good from from a, from an image uh, improvement point of view. You know what I mean? Because I think the foreign media, certainly the Western media, the English speaking media, or, or I think to an extent some, some European countries as well, will go there looking for problems. I mean, as they did in Sochi, oh, they spent 50 billion on this, and the water in my hotel room is still yellow, and there's two toilets that have been installed right next to each other. What were they thinking? You know, incompetent, add incompetent to the list, along with homophobic, uh, dishonest, corrupt, and violent. So, you know, hopefully, from Russia's point of view, this is going to go a bit better than that. And the one thing that, that maybe makes makes you optimistic about that is the fact that it's going to involve so many more people traveling there and going to so many more places in Russia. I mean, the Winter Olympics is kind of a fairly elite event. You know, we're talking about people from certain rich countries, not that many of them, uh, and going to one little resort, which is overpriced and, you know, whatever. Whereas this is going to be more of a this is what Russia is really like. You can't sort of Pentebkinize a whole country. You know what I mean? So I think if people's expectations are so low, there's two ways it could go. Number one, they could go and arrive and say, hey, this actually is kind of just like normal. You know, it's, like, it's not like this scary place that, you know, you hear about. It's, it's actually, I like it here. You know, it's, this, is, this is kind of we're having fun or whatever. There's also the possibility that you see what you expect to see. You know, or you're, if you're primed to see things in a certain way, then certain things you see back up that idea and other things. So whether your perception condition or your expectation con conditions your perspe uh, perception or whether you allow yourself to form a judgment when you get there. I'm going to try and do the second thing, Owen. Okay. I'm going to try and do the second thing, but... Uh, and I suggest you shut up and show more football. <laughs> We're just three days away from kickoff, everybody, and remember, soccer is popular. 2018 World Cup in Russia will be up to the highest standard. Soccer is popular. From bottom of my heart, thank you. Maradona turns like a little eel and comes away from trouble. The little squat man leaves it for dead. There's Beckham in the Milan! There's Beckham! In my younger days, I used to 
Much love to those of you who have signed up to the World Service for daily coverage of Ken's World Cup odyssey, such as Aidan Enright, who says, World Cup fever or possible excessive use of antihistamines got me in the end, guys. I'm now a proud member, and you should be too. However you get there, we're <laughs> exactly, glad you're here. Exactly. If you want to follow... Uh, welcome, first of all, Aidan, to the group. Uh, if you want to follow Aidan's advice, please get on to secondcaptains.com for a five or month plus VAT. You can sign up. And you're not committed to anything long-term, I should mention that. If you just want to sign up for the rest of June and see if you like it, uh, you can do that and then take it from there. It's all available on secondcaptains.com. A special shout out also to one of our longer term World Service members, Simon Hit it. I've got a call here that says you're the most boring, predictable, condescending interviewer around. Go back to lecturing. You have the charisma of a sick bag. Oh God. That's just it. I just Whoa. mentioned that you, no me. Okay, ain't nobody fing with my click, 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 click. Ain't nobody fresher than my mom. We don't normally click, broadcast all click, the, the stuff that click, comes from scum click, around the country. Click. Our scumbag of the week this week is not an emailer. We're changing it up. It's a gentleman who delivered his message in person. That message is sitting in your digestive system as we speak, Murph. <laughs> Where it should be for yeah. another little while. I'm sorry, I didn't get Richie's surname when he called to the door of the office this morning to deliver us a box of delicious donuts. Mm. This is not a plug. Richie doesn't work. I said to Richie, do you work for these guys? <laughs> and he said, no, I just, just wanted to drop them in. Just... World Service member, love what you guys are doing. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, the message says, Happy World Cup Week from a loyal scumbag, Richie. So there is a man consumed with World Cup fever. Somebody get, the, somebody get Richie to a hospital, Murph. Yeah, uh, the man has come down with serious World Cup fever. Yeah, He's yeah. behaving in a, quite frankly, irrational fashion. But anyone else out there who feels like dropping in yeah. delicious treats mm-hmm. to the office. I had a Belgian had a waffle. Belgian waffle. For, for instance, a yeah, Belgian waffle. Yeah. Fine, I got that in Pierce Stadium. But, you know, uh, one delivered to the office, also fine. So um, Maybe don't, don't feel like it'll be weird. You know, sure, we'll feel weird while taking the food off you. <laughs> but then once you've, we've closed the door on you, we'll just have some food and we'll be delighted. We've got a Monster World Cup chat with Tim Vickery and Jonathan Wilson coming up after Ken delivers a quick report on sport. Well, um, I have to say I have been heartened by the form of Neymar. I'm actually pretty excited watching Neymar and these friendlies. Uh, oh, you sent on a couple of you- goals on YouTube again. Yeah, yeah. Should we hear the, can we hear the commentator? This is uh, this is the effect that Neymar had on the commentator. Now, I think the language is Portuguese, but I think the commentator is actually Portuguese rather than Brazilian. I'm not totally sure. Someone who speaks Portuguese might be able to set me right. But whatever he, he speaks, Brazilian Portuguese or Portuguese Portuguese, it appeared that, well, this is what Neymar did to his ability to speak whatever dialect of Portuguese it is he usually speaks. William, Neymar, um para um é fortíssimo, que coisa inacreditável, o que faz Neymar 2-0. It's like somebody opening a can of Coke. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was a pretty good goal. It was a pretty good goal. I mean, it was... It was kind of a silly goal in a way. They were playing against Austria, and and it looked as unfortunate. Un- I was just watching the goals. I didn't see the whole match. But uh, it looked unfortunate. It's like, why have they left Neymar completely alone? Um, this is ridiculous. He's over standing one side of the box. William just sort of lobs the ball over to him. And he actually waits for the defender to come across and get in the way, just so he can <laughs> go past the defender and show off. Um, but yeah, Brazil had actually sort of pulled him out of... Um, Pull them out of shape before they uh, before that situation arose. So they look like they're going really well. The previous one, he'd, he'd scored a brilliant goal um, against Croatia at Anfield. Um, again, the same combination of uh, tight control and brilliant finishing. 
Um, pretty exciting to see. I just I wonder if his state of mind going into the World Cup is actually just going to be absolutely amazing. I mean, we've spent the last few months talking about Neymar kind of being an idiot. You know, kind kind of. We get, we have we we can we is we've been talking we, is we've been talking about this. Well, you've been talking. We've been lifted, but yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> you've been telling you've been telling people between yourself and Diego uh, Torres, Torres. You've been yeah, yeah. telling. Well, come on. I mean, he, he's he's made some stupid decisions. We don't all get everything right. I mean, he's gone to play in a in a in a backwater league. He's fallen for a lot of nonsense on about uh, how the game works, how, how to get out of people's certain people's little shadows, mm-hmm. certain tiny little shadows. Only probably as tall as Neymar, the shadow itself, when uh, the clock strikes eight, nine in the <laughs> evening. Um, but he, for some reason, Neymar felt he had to get get away from the best uh, the best teammates in the world and find his fortune elsewhere. And you know, okay, the season with Paris Saint Germain turned out to be not that great, uh, and obviously ended with a disappointing injury. And then Paris Saint Germain wanted to come back, and he was like, you know what, you guys, you're going to need to know your place. Because I've got the World Cup to get ready for, and while that may not have gone down very well with uh, the directors at Paris Saint Germain, it does appear as though he's come back in some kind of form. These are only friendly games, but <laughs> you know, he's no one else is, is doing this right now. Marcus Rashford, maybe Russia. Mm. He scored a pretty good goal as well. Yeah, but I mean, see, this is the thing. Like you know, whatever about talking about Neymar for the last couple of months, for the last four years. Building up to this World Cup, it's like Messi's, Messi and Ronaldo's last chance. Neymar actually has a team alongside him. Yeah. Full of really, really good players. Yeah. And that's what makes this, you know, like for, like for all the talk that this is their, those guys' last chance, it is kind of set up for Neymar in a way that it isn't set up for, for Messi or Ronaldo. No. Um, no, they don't have anything like the, 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 the team. There's nothing, no comparison between the quality of these teams. I mean, the team that they used against Austria... Um, had uh, a front three of Neymar on the left. Uh, this this seems to be what they're gonna do because they've got they've got like too many good players. The in in terms of pl- options up front, they have got Neymar, Gabriel Jesus, William, Coutinho, and Roberto Firmino. So it's like, okay, what do we do with these guys? So the answer is uh, Jesus centre forward, Neymar left, William right, Coutinho midfield, and Firmino bench. That seems to be what they're what they're going for but I mean it's, it's sorry incredible. could you just read that again Neymar on the left they're playing 4 yeah, 3 yeah, yeah. Neymar on the left William on the right Gabriel Jesus in the middle and then in midfield Coutinho along with Casemiro and, and Paulinho no Fernandinho uh, Fernandinho bench uh, I mean maybe he, who knows I mean yeah, it's, yeah. it strikes me Either Fern, way, Fernandinho yeah. Casemiro Paulinho you know you've yeah. got a you've got a, a bunch of pretty fit guys strong guys they're not going to let you down uh, Marcelo, Miranda, Thiago Silva, Danilo, and Allison. This is a good team. Yeah. Um, I think better than any of the other teams that I've seen so far. Um, so we got to see how uh, how things go. One of the other kind of favorites, I suppose, Germany. Kind of a weird thing going on with them of uh, Ilkay Gundogan being booed by their fans. Have you seen? Um, it's been strange. It's mentioned, I haven't seen the detail. Though. It's to do with the thing of a couple of weeks ago where himself and Mesut Ozil met with. Um, Type Erdogan, the Turkish president, who was in the UK on a visit, and he and he asked to meet with Gundogan, Özil, and Emre Can, but Emre Can didn't go. Uh, the other two did. Gundogan gave him a shirt saying "To my president," 
and the Germans, it turns out, are not happy about this. I don't know. I don't really understand how this breaks down in Germany. Um, but it seemed like plenty of people were pissed off with him because of the booing that he clearly received, booing and whistling, uh, when he came on for them and their friendly in uh, Leverkusen. So much so that the um, Chancellor has got involved to try and tell fans to, please, clap Ilke, he's a good lad. <laughs> it's all it's all a bit uh, strange. I'm not really, I don't really understand what's... Um, uh, why it's such a an issue for the Germans? Is it some loyalty issue? I don't. I don't really know. I mean, well, I'm, I, I, I presume it is what it is. It's, <coughs> yeah, it's, you're supposed to, to be German now. To my president, it's yeah, it's it's a complicated one with you know sort of players with dual uh, ancestry. Gunigan obviously is someone. I mean, Gunigan will have been criticised in Turkey for playing for Germany and not Turkey. You know what I mean? Ozil certainly has been, um, but. Uh, yeah, I think probably it'd be best just as well if he did what <clears throat> if he did what Stan Collymore is apparently doing. Stan Collymore uh, on RT, of course, uh, rushed today for the World Cup along with Jose Mourinho and others, uh, other such stars. Says he's got a no politics rule for the five weeks of the World Cup, which I'm a bit disappointed by. Thought it might have, might have been quite interesting to follow that unfolding over the last five weeks. He's involved in a bit of a ugly, um, ugly exchange at the moment with Ian Wright, and I don't know if you've seen that. Yeah. Um, this has been going on a few years, apparently. These two have had a bit of a beef. Really? Yeah, well, about a couple of years back. I'm, I'm only hearing this today based on their most recent spat. But supposedly, there's, there was... I think Sean Wright Phillips was criticised by Collie Moore and Ian Wright. And Collie Moore got into a bit of a Twitter back and forth over that. Right. So there's, there's been... I don't, I don't know how consistent it has been in, uh, in the interim. But seems to have escalated. Today, yeah. Seems to have escalated since then. Uh if Twitter is to be believed, if you want to see the tawdry details, you can go and check out Stan's uh, Stan's Twitter. He seems to be uh, pissed off at the moment about something or other. Can I just say that sometimes people don't realise what a beautiful heart Luis Suarez has? Because uh, Nicolas Ladero, uh, you know, a fairly mediocre Uruguayan uh, footballer of recent World Cups gone by, has been left out of their squad, owing to not being good enough to get into the squad. But... I saw Luis Suarez uh, talking about this at a press conference and he burst into tears. <laughs> he started crying. He started crying as he talked about... He, apparently, Nicolas Soldera somehow was a great mate of his. And now, I, I don't know why they're so close, but he literally started crying as they asked him about Ladero being excluded. And also Gaston Ramirez, who's been excluded, and, and how this is so hard. So um, big-hearted Luis uh, and his uh, trembling trembling lower lip I just hope he's able to get his head right before the uh, the big kickoff on which is uh, later this week let's wrap today's report on sport a flame hair a flame hair flame hair truth, truth Mr. Ken Early Mr. Ken Early Mr. Ken Early every so often I'm on the bus and I simply turn around to bite someone John Hayes I'm talking about on yeah. John Hayes now I always thought that was ridiculous he had won the victory over himself he loved Brendan Rogers. That's where it goes from. Thanks a lot, Pepe. Fair to say anybody could have managed those guys? No, of course not. Let me show you right now before you give it up. What is your first World Cup memory? It's a completely cliched, totally overused question this time every four years. But I actually really like it as a question, so I'm going to ask both of our guests today. Tim Vickery, you first. My first World Cup memory? Yeah. It, it, it's, a, it's a sticker rather than a game. Um, it's the 1970 World Cup. 
I was just turning five and therefore uh, a little bit too young for selection by Sir Alf. Um, and I was a little bit too young to, to really take it in. I think it's the time that suddenly a black and white TV appeared in, in, in my house because my old man was a, was a football nut. And we didn't have one before. But the thing that really sticks in my mind, there was a kid a couple of doors along who was a couple of years older who was collecting the, the, the sticker albums. And I remember having a look at some of his swaps, and this is a, a, a memory that's as vivid as, as if it happened yesterday, that uh, I was looking through them, and there was a Peruvian. I actually found this, this sticker or an image of this sticker on the internet the other day when I was thinking about it. It was Ramon Mifflin. And everything about that sticker absolutely, it just fascinated me. First, you've, you've got the kit, you know, which is so clean but beautifully exotic, you know, the gleaming white with the red sash. You've got the kind of Andean features of, of Mifflin. You've got the, even the, the, the color of the background. And I, I thought it was just fascinating. You know, I, I come from a family who'd never been abroad. My old man got to 84 without ever getting further than a weekend in your, in, in your fair island. Uh, and, you know, so France was like as far, as far away as the moon. But that sticker, it, it kind of, it really put in my mind the idea that there's a big wide world out there. And, uh, and see, one of the great things I think that football does anyway is socialize us. And one of the great things that the World Cup does is socialize us in a global context. And for me, when I think about that, I always th uh, think back of that sticker of Ramon Mifflin. And the great news is it's available for just £1.99 in the internet here. Tim, I'm having a look wow. at it. <laughs> uh, Jonathan, what about you? Uh, it was the 82 World Cup, so I was, I was five, about to turn six. And the, you know, the first game I remember watching, I remember watching the FA Cup final that year, the FA Cup final replay. I remember watching the European Cup final. So I was obviously just at an age when I was beginning to sort of grasp that football was a thing I might be interested in. And I remember coming home from school the day of England-France game and Brian Robson scoring for 27 seconds. And then I've got, I mean, as you know, Tim says, very, very vivid memories of, of, of little bits of that tournament. So I remember being at my grand's house and my grand lived at 200 yards in Motor Park and she'd been there the biggest ever crowd at Rocker Park when they when they played Derby in the Cup in 1929, I think, or 1930. Um, and my, my gran was very much into football, but her sister, Doris, wasn't. And I remember me and my dad watching Peruvi Cameroon on the telly, and my auntie Doris just sort of going, what are you doing? These aren't, these aren't British teams. Why do we care about these teams? And I remember the look of contempt that my dad gave her. And I, sort of, I remember sort of thinking quite clearly, yeah, that's exactly what I think. Yeah, we should be contemptuous of that kind of attitude. Um, and then we went to Scotland on holiday during the tournament. And it, um, my, my dad must not have been able to quite pull the political weight he later did for football because we weren't near a TV when England played Kuwait. So I remember walking down um, a high street in Fort William and seeing Trevor Francis score in a TV shop window. Um, so how my mum managed to get us out of the hotel when there was a, an England match on, I, I don't know. <laughs> But yes, um, and, and then I remember the, the, the Ladybird book from that World Cup um, and sort of like learning in a, in a way I guess a five-year-old does, but not actually sitting down learning by rope, but just sort of absorbing because you read it so often, you know, the, the score of every World Cup final, the, the, the kits, the, the capitals, the, the currency of every country involved. So, you know, at five years old, I knew that Tsuguchi was the capital of Honduras or Yonde was Cameroon just from that World Cup book. So, yeah, that, that idea that the World Cup is something that internationalises us, makes us aware of a, of a, of a, of a wider world, was absolutely the same for me. Be honest now, Jonathan. I know we're building up to the tournament and everyone's trying to get excited and all that kind of thing. But 
Is there any of that residual magic still residing within you or has it been beaten down over the years? No, it's been beaten down over the years, I'm afraid. <laughs> Tim, we I better get you on this. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's a little bit of excitement there now, but I mean, partly it's just, it's just different when you work at a tournament than when you, you're absorbing it. Partly, you know, I don't know, it just feels there's nothing new anymore. Um, and, you know, I remember Scott Murray writing a really good piece about this in, in The Guardian, talking about the impact of Jossima at the 86 World Cup. But he, he was just, a, you know, this bloke that nobody ever had heard of who suddenly turns up and he's playing this incredibly, you know, he's playing right back in an incredibly attacking way, pinging in shots for 30 yards. And that sort of thing just doesn't, you know, we, we're not surprised by players in the same way now. Well, hang on, James not- Rodriguez in the last World Cup. Come on, you've seen James Rodriguez in the Champions League. Loads, yeah, reporter. but nobody's expecting that, you know. No, but we knew who he was. It wasn't the same. It wasn't the same exoticism, precisely because a load of them play in you know five countries in Western Europe, and then we see them in the Champions League. And even if we don't, it's, it's yeah. You know, and I'm aware I'm partly responsible for this. The, the previews of tournaments are so in depth now mm. that the surprise isn't there. So you know, the, the Guardian doing that brilliant thing of of uh, profiling all 736 players, is it? Which yeah. is a fantastic work, but it does sort of mean that. We're not going to be shocked by it by a Jossamar again. Tim, do you also have this this sense that globalization has kind of spoiled the World Cup a little bit? In a way, it's taken a charm away. I, I can't feel uh, quite the same way about Josimar because it's exactly at that moment in his life that uh, he ended up marrying uh, my girlfriend's cousin and, and essentially wrecking her life. So <laughs> I don't have quite the same romantic illusions with uh, with Josimar. There's no doubt about it that. It was it was the World Cup was where you got to know all of these players and 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 there was a, that beautiful thing of discovery about it which which has gone. Having said that, with all of the with all of the complaints that we can make about it, it still retains some of the magic for me and it retains even more of that magic after having lived intensively through through the the last World Cup four years ago. Um, despite all of the problems and all of the protests thoroughly justified. The clearest memory I have of the, of the last World Cup is the last one. You know, you've uh, the, after the final, you've done all your work, you've done, you know, written all the articles, done the TV, done the radio. I went home for a couple of hours just to have a kit, just have a little kit. I kind of wanted to sleep for a century, uh, and uh, but I had to set the alarm because there was one last radio thing, BBC World Service on a on a beachside kiosk there at Copacabana Beach on the Avenida Atlantica. Uh, I really didn't want to go, you know, but fair enough. It's a last commitment. So I hauled my weary carcass over and, 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 and went over there. And and that that um, that main drag there, the Avenida Atlantica, that had been the centre of the world. It had felt like the centre of the world for the month of the World Cup because, you know, Rio is the centre of Brazil, Brazilian tourism. And, and everyone who'd come to the World Cup had ended up in Rio or the vast majority. And, and the vast majority of those had ended up on, on the Avenida Atlantica. And it was great. It was wonderful during that month, you know, to see the world together. And especially on that last night, because no one wanted it to end. No one wanted to go to bed and then have to wake up and think, yeah, the World Cup is history. Now, while we're still awake, up going up and down this avenue, the World Cup is still alive. And, and to see that, you know, in, in a just a totally multicultural uh, environment, was 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 absolutely marvelous and uh, it, it's something that i think the world needs more than ever all the international tensions just the the, the idea of, of bringing the world together around a common language 
um, still still retains some of that magic for me. Well, speaking of that then, Tim, and I'll ask you this first because you were uh, based in Brazil. You're in the Southern Hemisphere. You're in the Western Hemisphere. I don't know if the media environment that you live in is so saturated every day with um, talk of uh, Russian misdeeds, but that's very much the way that it is here at the moment. Um, you know, it's so as, as you know, this World Cup is about to start. A lot of people will make the point that this is uh, international sports uh, legitimizing an authoritarian regime, which is guilty of international aggression, human rights abuses. There's a whole uh, list of things uh, that can be brought up in connection to this. I just wonder if this is a theme in, in Brazil, and also what your feelings are. If you, if, if. If these sorts of considerations give you qualms about uh, kind of uh, giving yourself up to the World Cup for a month, uh, no, it isn't a theme here at all. It's 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 barely touched on, if 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 touched on at all. Um, obviously, the use of World Cup, the World Cup for and the use of football for for political purposes, there's there's nothing new in that. But specifically about the, the kind of Russia situation, you know, with the you know, watching from the other side of the world, the, the, the tensions between my own country of birth and Russia, I just can't understand what the fight's about. I can't understand what there is to fight about anymore. I don't understand it. It, 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 it absolutely baffles me. And uh, I, I come away perhaps more worried by the role of, 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 of media um, for whom you expect something uh, um, a little bit more more combative and independent than the role of governments from whom you, 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 you expect uh, grand, political grandstanding. Jonathan, how are your qualm levels? Um, yeah, they're pretty high. Um, it depends exactly what you mean by, by a qualm. Um, yeah, I, 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 I spent the last weekend, you know, I spent the last two days playing cricket, and, and I was actually really surprised by how many of my teammates have said to me, well, do you think it'll be safe? That hadn't even really occurred to me. I th- I'm, I'm, I'm certain it'll be safe. I think one of the th- things that Russia will do is make sure it is very, very safe, uh, because you know, Putin really is plays to a domestic audience more than the foreign audience, and you know, any sort of sign of of trouble or the police might not be in control. I think you know, there's, a, there's a, a genuine governmental concern there that might encourage opposition. So I, I think it'll be incredibly sort of placid World Cup from that point of view. Um, in terms of legitimising a regime. I'm just not sure World Cups do that anymore. I mean, if we sort of, if we present this as being, I mean, I guess that might happen if Russia win, but that's not going to happen. Um, and I don't think there's going to be sort of massive street celebrations or something. In the, I mean, I get, you know, the, the, the obvious um, example of where a, a World Cup has sustained uh, an authoritarian government um, is, is 78 in Argentina. And, you talk to players who played in that, and you sort of just feel great sympathy for them that their their great moment of triumph and some some have been tainted by this. And at the time, they weren't really aware. Were Argentinian people aware? Well, I don't think they really were, not to a huge extent. Should they be denied the joy they got from winning that because of what it then meant for for, for political reasons? So I, I just I, I sort of feel this World Cup is is almost irrelevant to Putin. Um, it, it, it's it, it's not. It's not going to sort of um, uh, create this sort of groundswell of popular opinion to, to support him. And I think what it actually may do is um, allow journalists in to sort of poke about in areas that haven't been poked about in. And it might actually uh, encourage a better understanding of Russian people rather than the Russian government. Well, Tim, if we 
talk then about something which which probably is more uh, of a theme in Brazil. I guess this is going to be if a South American team does not win this tournament, it will be four World Cups um, without a South American winner, which is the longest. It's it's already, I think, the longest spell ever with three World Cups without a South American winner. If a South American team doesn't win in Russia, can we say that there's a problem? There's some kind of a structural problem. This is not um, this is not normal. You know, as, as they might say, South Americans used to have the strongest international teams, and and if you don't go four World Cups without winning one, then that's decisively no longer the case. Well, there's a structural football uh, problem in football, which is the concentration in Western Europe. You know, the last six finalists, five have been have been from from Western Europe. The only exception was Argentina here on on South American soil. But you know, taking it back and, and looking at the bigger picture. Um, the recent years have been have been terrific for the, the kind of second tier of South American sides. When Colombia reached their first uh, quarterfinal in 2014, uh, Chile just had their best two World Cups, with the exception of 62 that they hosted uh, in 14 and, and 10. Paraguay had their best ever World Cup in 10. Ecuador had their best ever World Cup in, in 2006. And Uruguay have, have come back to, uh, to, to the top table. So uh, the, the the general panorama is uh, is is pretty good, um, but it's just at the top, uh, the, uh, the the South Americans are finding it very hard to compete with just a, even not even a handful of Western Europeans, but just you know just a few Western Europeans who've, who've distanced themselves from from the rest. Uh, and probably my expectation here is in, in in this World Cup is that the the very best sides are going to be very good. Uh, and uh, the, a lot of the others uh, are going to be, uh, even from Europe, are going to be pretty mediocre. What do you think of that, uh, Jonathan? Because looking at uh, friendlies, not like I've sat there watching all the pre-World Cup friendlies, but having uh, looked at a lot of the highlights, by far the most impressive team going into the tournament, to me, appears to be Brazil. Uh, yeah, I mean, in terms of qualifying, obviously you qualified fantastically well. With Ten points clear was at the top of that group. Um but I mean, I, I just wonder how much, how many wider themes you can really draw into, into just looking at who wins the World Cup. Um, you know, the World Cup is only seven games long, uh, and I think one of the, actually one of the weird things about World Cups in general is that we ha- we haven't really ha- ever had a shock winner. Maybe '54 when West Germany beat Hungary in the final, uh, but that just doesn't look like a shock to us because we know what West Germany wanted to become. So I, I, I sort of I have this sort of sense that the World Cup is, is overdue a shock. Um, and in terms of a South American team not winning any of the last three, well, we've had one of the greatest generations of German players ever, following on one of the greatest generations of Spanish players ever. I'm not sure we should be too worried about that. And even it, within that context, you had Argentina being a, a Gonzalo Guain finish away from winning the final last time, and a point that never gets talked about for reasons I don't understand, but Manuel Neuer should have been sent off in that final and, and wasn't. So... I, I, I don't think many things would have had to fall very differently for us to be going at this World Cup saying, oh, yeah, Argentina are the champions. Um, you know, can Lionel Messi you know, retain it? Um, so, yeah, I, 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 it worries me. I mean, it worries me when people talk about England and England's you know, failure since '66. Well, yeah, really? You know, you, you look back at and, and, and how, how significant is that failing? It's actually a series of quarterfinals, which is pretty much par, it's pretty much standard. So I, I think there's a, there's a huge danger in trying to read too much into who actually wins the World Cup rather than looking at how you play and, and, and the sort of 
process by which you, you, you get those results. How are things shaping up in Brazil, Tim? Um, Ken mentioned those friendlies. Obviously, you can't read too much into it, but it's, I'm sure it's nice that people are seeing Neymar scoring goals, given he's had, and brilliant goals at that, given he's had injury troubles. In general, the, the previews I've read seem to all alight on one theme, and that is that the, the, the management now have got them in uh, a state where, of course, they're still dependent on Neymar, but... There seems to be it seems to be a steadier ship all round compared to the fairly highly strung setup in Brazil. Well, as as Dinah Washington so nearly sung all those years ago, what a difference a coach makes, and he's he is a class act, uh, and he Chichi is, is is the only one really who's 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 modern. And Brazilian football became great by being modern. It wasn't born great. Uh, and they've allowed themselves over the years. And success is a terrible thing, really, because it makes you fat, lazy, and complacent. Uh, and the, over the years, they've allowed themselves to believe that it's innate, and they've forgotten the process uh, that they went through in order to become great. And, and that process involved uh, an incredible attention to detail, to off-the-field preparation, to physical preparation, and tactics. When they launched the back four, the idea, and there are so many intelligent people who fall for this, uh, and and so many trees have died for for books about you know written some of them by intelligent people some a little bit less so, but the idea that you know Brazil Brazilian football the Brazilian national team is some carnival in boots and uh, no one cares about the result they're all too busy trying to express themselves, uh, and uh, there's a flagrant disregard for defence and uh, it, it's all absolute rubbish. You know the people who who write this stuff should be thoroughly ashamed of themselves. We're talking about the country that invented the back four for crying out loud. You know and and, and when when they brought it in in 1958 they didn't concede a goal till the semi-final now that means that you get full value for every little bit of individual um, brilliance that, that that you have uh, and uh, and one of the golden rules of, of football in, in fact perhaps only Messi with Argentina is capable of denying this is that the, the stars shine when the, the the collective balance of the team is correct uh, now they've, they've got a coach who and, and again we go back to Western Europe it, it, it's where it's where m- most of the good ideas are coming from these days and a coach who spent time, he hasn't worked in Western Europe and he's, he's still worried about the language things, but he's spent a lot of time studying in depth um, uh, top level European football. And he's, he's taken those concepts into the national team. Um, the idea of having a, having a team which is compact and often in Brazilian football that the centre backs lie on top of the goalkeeper. No, he's brought the, he's brought the line up up higher. Uh, and the, the, his, his team he try and stay compact with the ball as a reference. They try and stay compact in defence, so they're hard to play through, and compact in attack, so the man on the ball has a has, has plenty of options for for a pass. So they're much better in possession than uh, than most recent Brazilian sides have have been. They they, are, they have a magnificent counter attack, but they're not as dependent on the counter attack. Um, they know that the bar is set is set very high. Uh, it's it's going to be, and if you compare it with the 2002 World Cup, I think the 2002 World Cup, the last time they won it, I think is a joke tournament. I think FIFA probably recognised this that, that no one was was fit enough to, to to play it, apart from perhaps Brazil, whose excellence in physical preparation got got them through. So it's going to be much much harder to win this one than it than it was than it was that one. Um, but they're in the fight. They've, you can look at the team and, and see one or two weaknesses, and I'm fascinated by what what happens to Felipe Coutinho in in, in this competition. And if he can really be a, a, a genuine midfielder, which is how it looks like they're going to select him uh, against Switzerland, um, so you, you can you can pick one or two holes in the side. But in general, uh, when they fly, they really fly. And, and um, I just hope that win or lose, that we come out of this World Cup with images of of, of a Brazil that that captivated us all in the past, 
Uh, and that hasn't really happened, I think, in recent tournaments. Yeah, I mean, I think they're, they're looking um, very strong, certainly stronger than um, their great rivals, Argentina, who I feel sorry for, Tim, out of this tournament. I honestly feel sorry for them. The, the, the kind of things that seem to be coming out of that camp are player after player, and I leave aside Lanzini, who had a terrible injury, and he's out, and and he could have been, you know, one of their um, one of their starting players. But player after player saying, you know, I just hope that we're kind of worthy of 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 Lionel Messi, you know, that that we come up to that we're able to perform for him. You know, it's it's a weird dynamic. This kind of sense of Messi going towards what's probably his last chance of winning this tournament. Um, he's had a tortured relationship with the national team over the years, and. I just sense from my uh, position here, very many thousands of miles away, that there's a kind of a fatalistic sense around this team that this story is going to have a sad ending. Messi and and the Argentina team. It could it could well do. I mean, they are and they are a shambles. Um, if if they are to win it, it will it will take the most extraordinary display from from Messi, and he'll have to he'll, he'll probably have to do more than Maradona did in '86. He certainly seems to have a team. That's much, much less organised than uh, than um, than Argentina were in '86, where they did um, provide a, a a solid platform for for Maradona. This has been coming for a while, you know. And one idea that really has to be put to bed is that Messi doesn't perform for Argentina. He performs heroics for Argentina. Without him, they wouldn't have come close to qualification. And it's been coming for a while because. Uh, and between 1995 and 2007, Argentina won the World Under-20 uh, Cup on five separate occasions. More important than the conquests is the conveyor belt of players produced for the senior side. It's what Uruguay are doing now. It, 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 it's why Uruguay have re-emerged. And, and maybe it, it, it's why England will, will be a power in, in, in future years. Yeah. Johnson, but that, that, oh, that youth setup that totally dried up from Argentina. Over the last decade, their, their under-20 teams have been appalling. And it's filtered through to the senior side. And you look at, look at the squad. They've got three goalkeepers all over 30, none of whom have played a competitive game for Argentina. Almost all the defenders are over 30. Uh, I, uh, I, won't, I won't have uh, Otamendi as a world-class centre-back, um, which means their last World Cup's world-class centre-back for me was, uh, was Ajala, who uh, retired from international football in 2007, uh, exactly at the point that results start to dip. Start to dip. They have a coach who has, uh, who's made his career on one idea, and I, I couldn't believe when, when Sampoli was appointed that more wasn't made from this. You know, his one idea, he doesn't seem to have the players to uh, to be able to, to carry out this idea. So, he, he's, so he, he's wandered wandered around in confusion. Are we going to play a back three? Are we going to play a back four? Are we going to do this? And I, I very much suspect that Messi has become a selector now in, in, in this side, in a kind of last gasp attempt to, uh, to, to, to try and pull something together. And Sampoli says openly, but this is more messy side than it than it is than it is mine. They will be one of the most fascinating sides in this in this World Cup because it's it's stingray on a global scale. Anything can happen in the next half hour. Yeah, I think absolutely, Jonathan. What Tim is just saying there. This is a, this to me is the story of of the of the World Cup. I mean, the beginning of it. It's a, what is going to happen here? I mean, you wrote a history of Argentine football. Um, what do you think? I mean, I saw Graham Sunis in the Sunday Times offering the opinion. Uh, Argentinians, Argentines make the best footballers because of the way they combine technique and temperament and are also cynical. What do you think he's going on about here? When I, when I look at these Argent, uh, Argentine players, guys like Dybala and Higuain, I see um, highly strong, sensitive creatures. Well, the, the, the interview um, Paolo Dybala gave, um, it must be, I don't know, six months or so ago now, which I think was widely misinterpreted, but it, it, was, it was fascinating about 
his relationship with, with Messi. And he, he said um, that he finds it really hard to play with Messi, which is sort of a line that we took out of it and, and sort of interpreted that to mean he didn't get on with Messi. But I think what he was actually saying was he's just not used to playing with somebody that good. And that, that sort of plays tricks with his mind, that when he gets the ball, he doesn't sort of think, you know, who's the player in the best position? He always thinks, Where, where's Messi? Um, and I, I think that is a problem Argentina have. And I, I, it's, um, I mean, I guess maybe it's a problem that, that, that Brazil had at the last World Cup, was always just give it to Neymar, Neymar will do something. And of course, that's not a way of achieving anything. Uh, and then you've got this issue with Sampaoli that, that you know he wants to press high the pitch, he wants to play with, with great pace and great tempo. And if you've got your two centre-backs, as Otamendi and Fasio, well, you're going to concede four against Nigeria and six against Spain, as they have done in friendlies. So Sampaoli was able to sort of temper that in those last what, four qualifiers he was in charge for. Although, I mean, even the fact they used three coaches in qualifying tells you what a, what a mess they are. Um, you, you muddled through those last, last few qualifiers, gets them there, and now he's having to sort of on the hoof recreate a new way or you know, find a new way of playing. So he 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 said, um, or there was a, a story uh, I think in March that he wanted to try playing a three four three, and Messi had said to him, "Look, I, I don't think that works for me. We did that with Barcelona under Luis Enrique last season, and if I play on the right of the three, uh, I end up you know, uh, Marcus gets drawn to, into my zone in that sort of inside right area where he, he you know he likes to um, deploy himself, and so." Uh, Sampaoli sort of has listened to that, which I, I guess is a you know a totally reasonable discussion for, for a, a, you know, the best player and the coaches to have. And they've now come up with this, what's been billed as a two-three-three-two, which when I first saw, you know, when I first heard talk of this, I sort of got very excited and thought, well, this is something totally new. Football's been around for 155 years and we haven't seen this. And people were saying it's a WM. Well, it's not a WM. A WM is 3-2-2-3. This is 2-3-3-2. But then you actually break it down and you see the players he's talking about using. And it looks just like a uh, you know a four four two with a diamond in midfield with Messi sort of dropping off probably Aguero. You know I see that Aguero started up front in training um, today, so maybe it's going to be Aguero rather than Aguero. Um But I, I, there's part of me. I mean I I, I, I take Tim's point that Sampaoli has has this one big idea, but I, you know I, he's certainly not unique in coaches in in in, in only having one big idea. But I, what I do sort of admire him for is being so open about okay we've got a problem with this that my defenders don't fit my style of play. And here is a solution I've come up with. And the, yeah, the truth is we don't know whether that will work or not. And that first game against Iceland, I mean, my, my, my suspicion is Iceland would be nowhere near as good at this World Cup as we were at the Euros. But still, that is going to be a fascinating game just to see how Argentina works. What about the champions, Jonathan? If Germany were to win this, Yogi Love becomes the first manager since Vittorio Pozzo in the second and third World Cups for Italy to retain the competition um, which would be a staggering achievement he's not a guy who t- I don't think anyone talks about as one of the greatest managers of all time but you, could, you couldn't deny him uh, that, that achievement if he leads this, uh, this excellent group of players to, the, to retaining the title it's notoriously difficult to do are you giving Germany a good chance of doing it? Uh, I am but I'm, that's not saying I'd uh, necessarily agree that Yogi Löw was a great coach I mean I don't agree that Zidane's a great coach he just won three Champions Leagues in a row so um and you know, when we talk about Pozzo as well, I think we have to bear in mind the circumstances of 1938 and exactly what happened to that Hungary team before that final. So Pozzo's achievement is there's an asterisk there. Uh, Lerf wouldn't have that kind of asterisk, but um, I do wonder. I did wonder during the last World Cup whether Germany succeeded despite him rather than because of him. Uh, yeah, Germany have a great. I mean, yeah, there's four. There's four teams who stand out above all others. Who are Germany, Brazil, Spain, France. There are doubts about all of them. 
Uh, the doubt about Germany is partly I'm not convinced about Löw's capacity to change games on the hoof, uh, particularly when he doesn't have Mirslav closer to, to throw on. Um, I think Germany have a problem at centre-forward, uh, that they don't have a closer equivalent, that you know, Mario Gomez is still on the side, you know, despite his you know, the many failings we've seen over many years with him. Uh, Thomas Müller hasn't had a, you know, for two years, hasn't really been anywhere near his best. He's scored 10 goals over the last two tournaments. Um, and they've, they still, I think, really haven't solved the, the fullback issue. They've got you know, Kimmich on one side, but on the other side, I think that, you know, there's, a, there's a shortfall, which is why I think Lerf has been experimenting with his back three, um, which hasn't really worked, which is why Sane's you know, not been included in the squad, because I think there was a, a hope he could play at left wing back. Um, so you know, I think there are questions there, but you know, it is a phenomenally gifted group of players, as we saw in the Confederations Cup last year. Yeah, France have got a phenomenally gifted group of players, uh, Tim, as well. I would say maybe second only to Brazil, or maybe even they've got the most talented squad. I mean, do you think that they're, uh, do you see them as, as realistic winners, or is it a case of a lot of good players, but where is the team? Well, um, one of the fascinating things about the World Cup is that it's, it works as like time speeded up. You know, during the course of, of the competition, teams can suddenly fall apart or they can suddenly come together. Uh, and on the basis that France could suddenly come together, how can you rule them out with the with the, the human resources available to them? Mm. Spain, do they uh, do they impress you? I mean, they they seem to have become a different type of team from the kind of intimidatingly controlling side that won all the international tournaments. They're maybe a little bit more uh, dynamic now, but also they let you get in the game a little bit more. Is Spain? I see the draw could have them in the final against Brazil if they were both to top their groups. Would they be the European side that's most respected or feared in South America? Well, it's, it's, uh, very often it's France um, really? from, from the Brazilians. Uh, remember, France ended Brazil in, uh, in 98 and uh, in, in 2006 as well. And in 2002, when Brazil won it, and the, the side that they really, really feared was France for, for the, the, the combination of, of, uh, of, of skill, organisation, physical power. Um, but you know, and I'd, I'd uh, happily defer to, to Harold Wilson on this one on where where he thinks, who he thinks the best of of these big three Europeans is going to be. Whether it's going to be Spain, Germany, or, or or France. I mean, Spain. The last I saw them, they were put in six past, past Argentina. But Argentina were were just so shambolic that uh, that perhaps it devalues it a little bit. So I'd love to hear Harold Wilson's opinion on on, on which of the big three Europeans he think will be the, he thinks will be the best. Well, Jonathan England. I think every report I've been reading in the last week or two all hits upon the themes that there are relatively low expectations. You know, you get into the knockout stages and then bow out gracefully, thereby building experience for the Euros and the next World Cup with a new wave of brilliant footballers coming through from the underage teams. That's all well and good, but that is predicated upon bowing out gracefully, which has not happened in the last couple of tournaments. Do you, do, do you feel that maybe there could be a sting in this tournament for England that, that might actually, despite the fact that nobody's expecting them to win it, that there, there, there are still ways to have a bit of a nightmare? Oh, there are, definitely. And I, I wonder if the order of games, which has sort of been presented as a, as a positive thing and don't play Belgium to last... So the, sort of the assumption is they, they hopefully will have qualified by then. Uh, I wonder if that actually doesn't count against them. Because I think the team, Gareth Southgate, set up that, that back three, playing very patient football. I think that's better suited to playing against good sides. And this is the problem you always get in international football. But you spend a lot of the time playing against teams who are much weaker than you, who sit deep against you. Um, and so just you just have to find a way to break them down. And, and it's not necessarily particularly exciting, particularly attractive. And then everybody gets very frustrated and people start changing things, then you play a good team, and all that good structure work you've done 
it's, it's sort of been 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 forgotten. So it may be that England sort of you know, beat Tunisia 2-0 very comfortably and they, they scraped through against Panama and they're brilliant. They got six <laughs> points. Belgium games are kind of free hit. And all was great. But I can, I can equally see a situation where they, they creak to a 0-0 draw against a Tunisia side, which historically is always very cynical. It always sits very deep. It's always tough. And you know, I say this from having been bored stupid by them at repeated Cups of Nations. And this Tunisia team will be that squared because Mzakni is not there. So they don't even have their, their one great creative player. So that you know the, the player that Tunisia are putting all their hopes on is Wabi Kasri. And I've seen enough of Wabi Kasri miss hitting crosses and miss hitting shots for Sunderland to know that <laughs> he will get at the bottom corner against England and will punish me for all the times I've sworn at him <laughs> by doing that. Um, and so, I, I, yeah, I can see a situation where England struggle to break down Tunisia or Panama, who, who are equally sort of tough. And we saw the, you know, the final qualifier... With the, the, the you know the epic time wasting, your real virtuoso time wasting in that oh, yeah. game near the end, um, you know they are not going to be easy. So I, I think you know <laughs> with England you always feel like you're just talking about expectations and how you manage them. And I think there's sort of a sense that oh brilliant we've managed expectations really well now we can be optimistic again. And actually we've got to manage our expectations of what's possible in those first two games. It's not going to be three four five nil. Take a one nil or two nil if that's what it takes, and then see where you are. And the draw has been relatively kind that if England go through, I can't see Japan doing anything. So you've, I think this is the weakest Japan probably since they, they first got to a World Cup in 98. So England, if they go through in the second round, will play one of Senegal, Poland, Colombia, who are all decent sides, but none of them teams who should terrify you. I think that group's really interesting as to who goes through. I think Poland aren't as good as they were a year ago, but still clearly have a very, very strong spine. Uh, Colombia, you know, I have been very good historically under Peckerman and have players like Hammers who are you know, still world-class players. And Senegal, I think, on the break particularly, are going to be very quick, very physical, very very powerful with, with Keita Balde and, and Sadio Mane um, and Naby Keita. So I think all three of those could pose difficulties, but equally the kind of team you should be facing in the last 16 of the World Cup. And then you get to a quarter-final potentially where I think they would play either Brazil or Germany, which obviously is a is much, much harder. Yeah, well, that would be the graceful exit, I suppose, a quarterfinal against one of those two teams. Quick predictions on who's going to win the whole tournament, Tim? Well, I find it very hard to make predictions. I think the only hard and fast prediction that you can make is that at some point during the World Cup, Harold Wilson is going to shoehorn Sunderland into the narrative. He's managed it twice already already today. So uh, that, that, that's my hard and fast prediction. If, if you're going to pin me back to the wall, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say Germany, but without a great deal of conviction, because let's watch it unfold and, in, and, and, and have fun seeing who's going to come out on top. Jonathan? I would go Spain, but I, I worry slightly about their lack of pace. Okay, good enough. Listen, Jonathan, brilliant stuff. Tim, thanks so much. Cheers, thank you. Just a crying big baby. But you cannot call it a player, a baby.
against them in the premiership and we never said they are baby. It's just a crying big baby. And you cannot call a player a baby. Murph, I know you always wanted Peru's Ramon Mifflin, Jonathan Wilson's Anti Doris, and legendary Italy <laughs> manager Vittorio Pozzo in the same conversation. Yeah. I've been trying to shoehorn those three yeah. together for, for many years It just now. has, has to happen organically. I've, I've always told you, it'll happen Years someday. of work. Yeah. <laughs> I've finally got it together. What's the Ken Early World Doris Cup was tough. Da- to, Doris, to be fair, you get the other two in, no Doris problem. Got but anti-Doris. Of course, Jonathan Wilson has an anti called Doris. Mm-hmm. It's to be expected. What's the Ken Early prediction? Um, I predict goals. Goals? <laughs> yeah. Uh, Do you predict goals? Do you predict a lot of an exciting tournament? I predict goals, Owen. A lot of lot of not good football being played these days at club level, attacking football. But internationally, will they all tighten up as sometimes happens? I know. I was talking to a friend, a friend of mine about this. And he was saying, "Look, it's they should really play all these matches just up a mountain uh, at the hottest part of the day, where whatever time that is." Uh, the World Cup matches are so much better when the sun is high and scorching in the sky. Everyone is far too exhausted from heat and altitude sickness to be able to defend. Mm-hmm. And that is just what, that's when the magic happens. But looking at the venues, I don't really see that. Mm. I don't see that happening in, in too many places. I mean, maybe some, maybe, maybe some places are going to be humid. I mean, that, that might, our, might be our best hope. Some um, really tough humidity in places like Volgograd or Samara or whatever. Just Nizhny you know, Novgorod uh, isn't halfway up the Urals or anything, is it? No, it's... I I I think a lot of these places can get quite warm in summer, all right. But it's quite far north as well, so I don't know okay. if it'd be um, yeah. if it'd be a real scorchio. So what we're looking for is conditions that make it dangerous to play football. That's mm. when the best football happens. When when players just the legs feel like lead. Uh, if Ken was in charge, it, we we wouldn't have forty eight teams at the World Cup, but it would be a lot more like uh, Pat Sharp's Funhouse. Bring on Qatar is all I can say. I, I, there was actually news about that, that, which is you know they were trying to to actually upgrade the Qatar World Cup to 48 teams. Yeah. Uh, well, that's been shelved. Yeah. Uh, apparently, it was just like, you can't, you actually can't be serious. You cannot be serious. Imagine 48 teams in a country the size of Qatar. <laughs> like, what? So they've said, that they've said no, it'll, it'll still be 2026. The, other, the big decision is this week, uh, Wednesday, is the Congress to decide where the 2026 World Cup is. So after two controversial awards in a row... Can FIFA afford to give the 2026 World Cup to an evil empire like the United States? There are some dark forces at work here. That is the that is a question that will be answered in Moscow on Wednesday. Where? USA, Mexico, and Canada united bid with uh, th- with Donald Trump like... and weak and dishonest uh, yeah. weak and dishonest Canadian leader uh, Trudeau. They should give it to Amazon. You know, they should literally give it to like some giant corporation instead. Just yeah. Amazon, it's your World Cup. Do w- with it what you will. I want to see the big, the big, uh, the three amigos uh, yeah. say, uh, blaming each other for Morocco getting it. That's what I, that's what I really, <laughs> that's what I hope happens. So Morocco twenty twenty six all the way. You didn't answer my other question. Who's going to win twenty eighteen? Well, I'll tell you this, Owen. I thought about this. Belgium. And I, f- I figured out that you can't really say. You don't know. Oh, I knew that Spain were going to win in 2010. And I knew that Germany were going to win in 2014. How's that for you? No, that's not a prediction. That's no, but a, it's a review. I knew. Tournament review. I knew. I went, to, I went to six Germany games in that World Cup because I knew I was going to be watching the champions. Mm-hmm. I knew that before it started. 
I don't remember predicting they were going to win. But well, I didn't. I didn't want to make a fool of myself. I just knew. I just knew I had a quiet hunch. And same with Spain. I don't have that hunch. I don't have. I don't look at any of these teams and go, "Yeah, they're definitely better than everyone else." I don't. The one, the team that comes closest to that for me is Brazil, because they've just got. I mean, they've got. If you've got Neymar, Coutinho, Jesus, you know, and the team makes sense. You know, I can see balance and structure in the side, and they've played really, really well under this coach. I think it's one defeat, five goals conceded, or something crazy like that, in in twenty odd games. So yeah, I think they're the strongest team. Um, the other teams. I think France should be brilliant, but I don't think they're going to be again. You know, I thought Giroud got injured uh, the other day, but not badly enough to keep him out. Um, I say Sissouna said that he'd leave Paul Pogba on the bench. That's that's maybe for another another conversation. Well, France the, the thing is that France are, are a team that could leave Paul Pogba on the bench and, and not really notice it because they've got so many good players that the, the problem is almost where who do I pick? What do I do? Like I, I don't really get the sense that they do they really know what they're doing. Maybe it happens as Tim said. Maybe it could could come together for them in the tournament. But if it's not Brazil, then surely it has to be Germany or Spain. Uh, neither of them are as good, I think, in the years that they won the World Cup. But both of them should be too good for the other teams. So Brazil is the answer, Murph? Uh, well, yeah, Brazil, I Brazil. think, for me, yeah. I'm going to go for Belgium. Why not? An outsider, a dark horse. Uh, it's about time a dark oh. horse won a World Cup. Like, for God's sake. Are they still a dark a horse when they've like, got some of the best players no, in Europe? No, give us a serious answer. No, no, no. Seriously, now. Come on, let's be honest now. But why not Belgium? Belgium have Belgium good Look good at their players. squad. It's yeah. insane. They're so good they can leave Raja Nangalan out. There's your answer. <sighs> Safe travels, Belgium. Ken. Belgium. Thank you, we'll Ridiculous. catch up with you on the other side of that iron curtain. Don't worry, I won't do the iron curtain. Uh, <laughs> too often. Yeah. But maybe when you come back, you might explain. Ah, no, listen, no, it's fine. Yes. We can read a book or yeah, something. Yeah, I'll read fine. a book. Thanks, Ken. Thank you, Owen. Good luck, Ken. Thanks, Kira. Thanks, Murph. See Thanks for listening. And don't forget World Cup coverage all week in the World Service. See you tomorrow. Neymar. Um para um é fortíssimo, nem... <risos> que coisa inacreditável. a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you chiching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 